Coming up this hour, we're going to have to talk COVID. We're talking Bethel. We're talking QAnon. And then for the rest of the hour, Pastor Rich Velotas and his new book, The Deeply Formed Life. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You know the drill, but I'm going to do it anyway. We're all over the place on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. And we're also podcasted. I cannot recommend enough. You check us out. And while you're there, uh, subscribe, rate, review, send it to a friend. All of that does help us out a whole ton. I did make the mistake yesterday, Brian. Forgive me, please. I just jumped right to news. I just like got got right on down to it and didn't even pause to ask, how are you doing, my co-host friend? <laughs> I am doing great. I appreciate your care there. No, I'm doing great. Uh, enjoying the sunny weather. But I am... Uh, uh, while I am doing wonderfully, uh, or people may not know, you're about to head out on vacation. So tomorrow, so you must be feeling wonderful right now. I'm, I'm imposed. I'm, I'm uh, projecting my own feelings there, but you must be feeling good. Uh, you're heading off on vacation, and I'm thrilled for you. I mean, I'm excited. I really am. It is always there's a, a small asterisk because anytime it's like road trips with a three and one and a half year old, you're like excited but cautious or uh, <laughs> thrilled but suspicious like there's gonna be <laughs> i'm sure i'll have stories when i get back but uh yeah we're we're thrilled we're gonna do a bit of a road trip and stay at some different airbnbs which is sort of sort of our jam that's kind, of, that's how we like to do it yeah but uh, i'll miss you guys we'll be we'll be back we'll be back refreshed you'll hear a different a new pep in ian's step as it were uh <laughs> and you'll just hear our, me all tired <laughs> yeah right <laughs> don't ever leave again uh <laughs> as we've been doing for the last little bit who even knows how long we've been doing this the very first segment I've, I've kind of just been filling in a uh, number of stories that caught my attention. So there's no real rhyme or reason. Just like, oh, this would be interesting to at least highlight briefly. And uh, I'm going to let you go ahead and choose which one you want to start with. Yeah, I found this one to be really interesting out of religion news. He says a surge of over 100 COVID-19 cases are linked to Evangelical Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry yeah. uh, out in California. It's a Pentecostal a school run by Bethel Mega Church of Bethel out in the city of Reading. And it's pretty unbelievable. They have uh, connected 123 cases to the school over the past two weeks. Bethel has come out and said most of them were linked to off-campus housing and uh, social interactions outside of school hours. Because interestingly, it seems like the school has taken a lot of the same precautions that other schools have. But it's just a uh, a reminder again uh, that it doesn't take much for for to have super spreading events of COVID-19. We saw that in the Rose Garden in Washington, D.C. at the White House. And so one of the epicenters, one of the spreader events seems to be Bethel uh, School of Supernatural Ministry. And I got to be I got to say this. There were a lot of jokes going around, which might be in poor taste with COVID, but uh, people saying, that Bethel is has does a lot with healing, and they're like, well, this is kind of ironic. <laughs> but oh, in reality, another small fact: my youth pastor, who married my wife and I, is a uh, is a is a teacher there out at the uh, Bethel school. Uh, but yeah, it is uh, prayers for the people there because that's a that's a big deal. It says they've actually traced 137 positive COVID 19 cases back to the students and staff since the start of early September when school started. So hopefully they get that under control. And again, it's a reminder we're living in the midst of a pandemic right now. See, I thought for sure the joke was going to be someone saying more like supernatural spreader, right? (laughs) It's a good joke. You did it. It's not a good joke. It does make me think, what's the Michael Scott quote where 
He says, like, I'm not superstitious, but I'm a little stitious. I'm a little stitious, yeah. yes. <laughs> I think I think of that joke three times a week. I don't <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me. You and me both. All right. So there's a couple of stories that would kind of fit in this category. Every once in a while, probably not as often as we should. I try to highlight some like international Christian news because mm-hmm. just again, I think I don't know why. I think it's so important for us to keep some of these things at the forefront of our mind. This headline out of uh, Christian Post, Chinese Christian kindergarten teacher imprisoned on suspicion of sharing faith with students. The headline kind of explains the whole thing. I would recommend go and read the whole story. There's like two or three others that I didn't put in the rundown in a similar type of category where like you just read it and you think that's so different from my reality here in the suburbs of Chicago. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And it's just a reminder, like you just said, that uh, that's why I like it when we do stories that just aren't in Chicago or just in America, because you get reminded uh, that that there's a whole world out there where there is actual persecution going on. It doesn't mean our lives are always easy here, but where there's legitimate persecution, where there's legitimate danger for people who uh, are Christians. And and this is another one of those stories. And uh, so, yeah, keeping an eye on this one. But Again, like I said, it, it is a reminder that it's really difficult out there around the world for many uh, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, no kidding, man. Another one that we uh, – this headline has really a couple of things we've talked about on the show a lot. The uh, Out of NBC News, Facebook bans QAnon across its platforms. Did you see this one? I did, yeah, and my first thought was good. Uh, you and I have done stories about QAnon. It is – uh, QAnon is a uh, a very, an alt right wing conspiracy uh, theory uh, movement uh, that has some pretty dark conspiracy theories, and so um, you know there might I the counter argument to this is well we don't need censorship no matter how bad things are, but we have seen that as conspiracy theories and false false news gets gets into the social media stream that it's really hard to stop those narratives and i know facebook and twitter and instagram they've been trying to do a lot better job than what happened in 2016 with kind of uh, nipping these in the bud if you will and uh and so qAnon is uh, we've done stories on this it's it's a dangerous deal i would say because of the lengths that they go to conspiracy theories and uh, oftentimes they're very pro uh, President Trump and very pro uh, and and will put out there some kind of crazy stuff about people uh, on the other side of the aisle. And so I was OK with this. I know, again, some people probably the, the censorship flag goes up for them. But for me, uh, I think QAnon is bad enough that I'm good with them being sidelined on this. Well, let me uh, let me just read this last one. And rather than read the headline, I'm going to read the story first to kind of. Uh... I'll whet your appetite a little bit. So it begins by saying Bishop Eusebio Phelps, uh, Phelps, the pastor of New Faith Christian Church in the Atlanta suburb of Stockbridge, had a conversation with a waitress in a local Waffle House when he phoned in to place an order. Hannah Hill was the waitress who filled out his order, was elated when she received a $40 tip from the bishop. However, that number would increase to over $12,000 after Phelps began a Facebook campaign to raise just $1,000 for her. The pastor was inspired to do this after hearing Hill, who was pregnant at the time, share that she wanted to name her future son Samuel. Phelps lost his son named Samuel about seven years ago mm-hmm. and, after speaking to his wife, decided to raise funds for the waitress. The event was coming on the anniversary of their son passing away, he stated in an interview with Eleven Alive. Phelps had originally given her $40, the contents of his pocket, so that he could, uh, so that she could buy something nice for the baby. But after talking to his wife, the pair decided they wanted to try to give her more. So, with the goal of raising $1,000 for Hill in mind, 
Phelps turned to Facebook to ask his friends to donate if they could. Overnight, Phelps saw his friends were able to raise over $6,000. Phelps then went to the Waffle House to give her a check for the money, but it was her day off. Meanwhile, more people were donating to Hill and others following Phelps' journey to give Hill the money on a live stream uh, started to try to get in touch with her. Eventually, one person reached out to her roommate who woke Hill up. The two drove to the Waffle House, and by the time she got there, the dollar amount from donations had exceeded $12,000. According to a statement given to local outlet WXIA, uh, Hill said she didn't really attend church often, but had been praying more recently and may consider going back to church. She was living with her mother to make ends meet. She credits God for receiving the money. God knew he felt it on his heart, she stated. I, I just mm. thought that was it's a great story. one of those feel-good stories where in the midst of all the headlines and all the... I don't know, fighting and division. It's uh, it it does my heart good to see stories like this every once in a while, like a little bit of faith in humanity restored. How do you feel about that? Yeah, not only faith in humanity, but how often, including the story just five minutes ago, do we rip on social media and places like Facebook? But this is Facebook being used for real, real good because yeah. uh, that was the engine that they use. But, yeah, it's the same way that when we do good news network stories that we feel good because, yeah, you know what? We talk about so many dark things that to see the light and to see good people doing good things is always uh, it, it, it kind of restores your faith in humanity a little bit. Yeah, 100%. Coming up next, an interview that you're not going to want to miss. Pastor Rich Velotis is going to be joining us for the remainder of the hour, talking about his new book, The Deeply Formed Life. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And for the rest of the hour, I could not be more thrilled. We have on the show for the first time, but hopefully not the last, none other than the one and only Rich Velotis. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be here. It's our pleasure, man. I uh, I briefed you a little bit before we went live here, but I'd love for you to take a minute or two or five, if you want, and just introduce yourself to our Common Good audience. Yeah, I happen to be the son of Richard Sr. and Nicolas Avillodas. Uh, my parents are from Puerto Rico. I am the husband to my wife, Rosie, of 14 years and the father to... Nathan, six years old, and Karis, 11 years old. Mm. So uh, at this time, I am a pastor and a principal of a homeschool <laughs> academy and uh, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and live in Queens. And our church is in a place where National Geographic has called the most diverse zip code in the world. So wow. uh, that's a little bit about me. Yeah, Rich, I, I'm going to try not to bring up the fact that you and I are both long-suffering Mets fans. So we've figured that out about each other. But uh, good job, good job. as you said, uh, your church, New Life Fellowship in Queens, I was just reading kind of your bio and I was amazed to see, and you were just talking about the diversity of the area, that it has 75 countries represented in it. That, that is mind-boggling to me. What's it like to lead a church with that much diversity and, and that many different countries represented? It is beautifully painful. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's beautiful in, in so many ways. You know, there's 75 nations represented in our church. Uh, at the nearby hospital, there's 123 languages that are spoken to wow. give you a sense as to the diversity. You know, 50, 50% of Queens is foreign born. In our own borough, we have 2.2 million people. So it's, it's a large, large, large uh, place. Uh, but it's it's beautiful in the sense that uh, we get to see the diversity of the body of Christ every mm -hmm. week when we gather, especially when we were gathering in person. Uh, we get to see facets of 
the character of God. We get to see facets of how people approach scripture. Uh, and if you hear noise in the background, I'm in Queens. So you hear motorcycles <laughs> and cars honking and all that there. Uh, so all that, it's beautiful. The tensions are because people are coming from so many different places in life, not just ethnically, but, uh, you know, sociopolitically and um, generationally and in terms of education and such, uh, people are coming with many different opinions about many different things. And so trying to create spaces and find spaces where unity can be found in, in the midst of incredible diversity is uh, very challenging and it's a very holy task as well. Mm-hmm. Rich, you wrote a book that I've been looking forward to for a long time called The Deeply Formed Life. And we're going to spend a lot of time this hour talking about that. But I also know that since the murder of George Floyd and others that you've you've been you've been given a number of opportunities and platforms to speak about things that Brian and I have been trying to do our best to talk about, but maybe even more importantly, to shut our mouths. And, and you know, because he and I are both white male pastors in the suburbs wanting to really l- like lament and listen. But, you know, we've got some pushback if we address things like systemic racism or white privilege. Like as a pastor, how have you been navigating some of the some of the unrest, I guess, in that regard, in light of what you were just sharing about like the diversity of your community? Yeah, I have found that in navigating racial tensions in our own community, I've had to repeatedly uh, define and re- redefine two words, uh, the gospel and race uh, mm-hmm. or racism. Uh, and so I, I find in every sermon I'm talking about the gospel, but in a way that is large enough, robust enough to uh, engage some of the realities of uh, racial injustice and racial hostility. And the same thing as it pertains to, to race and racism. I, I consistently, whether in preaching and articles and uh, social media posts, have to repeatedly say, when we say racism, this is what we mean and this is what we don't necessarily mean, that there are many mm. facets and layers and, uh, you know, uh, you know, various layers to address race. And so we have to talk about it at least on three layers, individually, interpersonally, institutionally. And so I have found that much of the work is on defining and redefining terms and then asking what might God have to say to this particular issue in our day. But um, so much of it is trying to get people on the same page in terms of how we're understanding particular terms. Mm. Yeah. And Rich, uh, I know we're all dealing with the coronavirus pandemic right now, all of us as pastors and just people. Uh, but if I remember right, where you live was like ground zero. It was the epicenter at the worst outbreak in New York City. Uh, what was that like just as a resident of Queens, but also as a pastor uh, in that borough? Yeah, as a resident, I, I live two miles from Elmhurst Hospital, which was featured prominently on the news our church is one mile away from Elmhurst Hospital. It was very eerie because on a regular basis, we heard the sounds of the uh, sirens blaring through the street at all times of the day and night. Uh, and it became so consistent, just the sirens from the ambulance and such, uh, that the, the, the sound just faded in the background because we heard it so often. Uh, and so it was very eerie. Um, folks from our congregation, uh, you know, had COVID. Um, thankfully, no one from our congregation died from it. However, very sadly, relatives of congregants died. So there are at least about uh, seven or eight that I can think of, of brothers or parents or uncles uh, that passed away. So it was very eerie. Um, 
walking down the street, lots of fear, lots of anxiety. And, you know, here we are some seven months later, uh, lots of change in our city. We're kind of figuring out, yeah, we can, I guess, navigate through this in a new way. Uh, But when it first hit, uh, it was uh, frightening and very eerie for sure. My goodness. All right. So, Rich, I mentioned this at the beginning. Uh, We're going to talk about your book and we only have a couple of minutes left in this segment. So I'd love for you to take the remaining two or so minutes that we have and kind of paint for us a 30,000 foot view of the book, why you wrote it, and maybe maybe tease out a little bit some of the things we're going to talk about. Yeah, I wrote the book, The Deeply Formed Life, because out of pastoral concern, in the same way that uh, Eugene Peterson wrote the message translation out of pastoral concern for his community, where he translated, I believe he started off with the book of Galatians, trying to help his congregation understand what Paul was saying to that church. And one thing led to the next, where he was uh, paraphrasing entire other epistles. And next thing you know, we have the message translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, prim- I wrote it primarily out of pastoral concern because the five values that I touch in the book are actually the five values of our congregation. And those values are contemplative rhythms, racial reconciliation, uh, interior examination, sexual wholeness, and missional presence. At New Life, we have, we call them the five M's, so we don't use that language. We call it monastic, multiracial, emotional health, uh, marriage to Christ, and missional. But those were the five values that uh, really make up our congregation. These are the values that have significantly impacted my life. And what I wanted to do in writing this, it's it's quite an ambitious project, but I was trying to uh, broaden our vision of spiritual formation. Mm. Uh, When we think about spiritual formation, uh, we think about some of the classics that have significantly impacted my life, uh, the celebration of discipline by Richard mm-hmm. Foster, anything mm-hmm. from Dallas Willard, things along those lines. What I wanted to do was do my best to incorporate the traditional uh, individual kind of practices of silence, prayer, solitude, etc., but then broaden it out to say, how do we formationally engage matters of race, formationally engage matters of sexuality and justice? That's essentially what I'm trying to do with this book. That's brilliant. That voice you're hearing, by the way, is Pastor Rich Velotis, author of the new book, The Deeply Formed Life. He's going to stick around for two more segments as we take a deeper dive into that book. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and we're joined by Pastor Rich Velotis, author of the new book, The Deeply Formed Life. And he did a phenomenal job offering us what we call in the biz a bit of a segue, a bit of a tease, and uh, gave us a 30,000-foot perspective on the book. But what, I, what I'd love to do now, especially in this cultural moment that we're you know, oddly all experiencing to one degree or another, I'd love for you to drill down deeper. Why, why are spiritual practices and rhythms so important, and even, maybe even more so right now amidst a pandemic, amidst everything that we're facing? Why, why is this so significant? Yeah, when I think about spiritual practices, spiritual practices for me is about the intentional reordering of our lives mm. uh, in a way that um, you know helps us to live from the center of God's love as as witnesses to Christ and His kingdom. But it's really that phrase: it's the intentional reordering of our lives. And as many people have experienced in this pandemic, and even before it, and when this pandemic is over, uh, our lives fall into great disorder very easily uh, with the pace that we live, with the antagonisms that 
come through our television and through our social media uh, accounts and such. Uh, it's very easy to live lives that are disordered, uh, disoriented. So these spiritual practices, uh, and when I talk about in my book, spiritual practices for all of these areas, whether we're talking about race or prayer or justice or sexuality or our own emotional health, uh, these practices, yeah, they're, they're about intentionally reordering our lives so that we are following Christ, not just in our minds, but in our hearts and expressing that in our very lives, our bodies across the board. So this is moving beyond just Christianity in our head. This is hmm. embodying Christianity on a day-to-day basis uh, as, as it pertains to some of the more challenging issues of our day. In the book, you talk about the importance of slowing down, and, and that's so hard, right, in our culture right now, kind of slowing down and disconnecting. Two questions. Could you talk to the listener out there who's like, I just can't slow down. It's just not possible. What's the effect going to be in their life as they live at that hectic pace? And then secondly, what would be a practical, say, a first step to help somebody just start this process of slowing down? You know, when I hear people say I can't slow down, first of all, uh, I live in the city that never sleeps. uh, (laughs) I understand this uh, deeply. Uh, I've heard people say from time to time, you know, I'll stop, you know, I'll stop when uh, when I see God face to face, you know, and my Mm -hmm. retort is typically you're going to see him very quickly if that's the case here, (laughs) Uh, because the pace that we live is often uh, does violence against our souls. And I see it every day. I pastor a congregation where people are uh, have way too much to do, very little time, uh, jobs that are incredibly demanding, uh, children to raise, money to make. And so uh, I, I, I know this and I write from the context of people running into subways. Uh, I, run in, I write in a context where we, we do have significant mission uh, in our church. We have a community development corporation in which we are serving thousands of people in our community. There's a lot that's happening. But uh, I do say, unless we create and establish intentional rhythms, uh, we're not going to have a life with God to sustain the work we're doing for God. In terms of just the, the, uh, the practice that I typically go to, it's really the one that has most profoundly impacted me in this area over the past 12 years. And it is Sabbath keeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Sabbath for me is about uh, a 24 hour period, not a metaphorical or spiritual 24 hour period, like a literal 24 hour period without any have tos, without mm-hmm. any shoulds, without any anxiety uh, that over time is to result in deep rest and renewal. And it is in that 24 hour period where I am giving attention to things like delighting. What are the things mm-hmm. that give me life? What are the things mm-hmm. that uh, produce joy in me? Uh, contemplating God. What does my life look like in prayer and deepening in the scriptures? And over time, a 24 hour period, you doing this uh, over time will really um, not just energize you and recenter you. What will also happen is the idols of our souls will also get exercised. And this is what I mean by that. It's often the case that people say, yeah, I want to rest and keep Sabbath because that'll help me work more effectively. And while that is true, the goal of keeping Sabbath is not to uh, be more efficient. The goal of keeping Sabbath is to resist the idol of efficiency. Mm -hmm. And uh, because our lives are more than what we produce, we are more than what we accomplish. 
we are who we are by, you know, we, we are uh, the, the, the core identity of who we are is in the love of God. Mm-hmm. And the Sabbath is one of the key points of formation that remind us of that. Yeah, Rich, you, you mentioned this idea of anxiety, and we're actually in the middle of a series at our church right now on on mental health, and we, we covered anxiety, depression. I was talking about suicidal ideation last week, which was helpful, but incredibly heavy. And I'm finding that a, a lot of people are feeling unbelievably heightened levels of anxiety and fear right now. And in a lot of ways, I'd say for good reason. In the book, you talk about some some questions that we can ask ourselves in order to become more aware of that. And you also reference praying the Lord's prayer every day. Can, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. In terms of uh, navigating anxiety, I have found in my own life, 2020 has produced more anxiety this year in me than mm. in many of the years prior combined as a pastor. Uh, the anxiety of, of meeting people's needs, the anxiety of of holding on to the multiple tensions within our congregation. Should we open? Should we stay closed? Should we wear masks? Should we not? Um, You know, across the board, the political hostility that has uh, not just crept into our church, but is, I mean, fully alive in our church Mm -hmm. uh, has produced lots of anxiety. So for me, when I think about um, the anxiety that surfaces in my life, I often think about this, uh, a framework that I've created in the book uh, of five very simple questions. Uh, And it actually, it helps me whenever there's anxiety, when anxiety has become a disproportionate reaction to something that I'm experiencing. And I want to tell you, uh, this is very fresh in my mind because I found myself reflecting and journaling on this just last night because of a few emails that I received. Uh, that produced anxiety in me. But here's a very simple uh, framework that I use whenever I find myself reacting with anxiety. What happened? That's the first question. The second question is, what am I feeling? The third question is, what is the story I'm telling myself? The fourth question is, what does the gospel say? Mm -hmm. And the last question is, what might be the counter instinctual act that I need to give myself to? And so whenever anxiety surfaces, you know, what happened? What, you know, what's going on here? What am I feeling? And then that third question, it's often triggering something from the past that's unresolved, yeah. a wound that hasn't been healed yet, that's resurfacing. Most of the anxiety that comes up today in our lives is not just something that just happened today. It's triggering something that's happened in the past. Okay. And so what does the gospel say? And what's the counter act that I have to give myself to? That's been a framework that I've... Um, given myself to, to help me navigate anxiety. Mm. Uh, Rich, I, I'm wondering how you would answer for people who just go, I, I get this sometime as a pastor, uh, this question, just pastor, I don't know how to pray. I don't even know where to start. And so you talk about prayer in the book. Some, how would you answer that question to somebody who just goes, I don't really even know where to start when it comes to prayer. Yeah. Two things I would say. The first thing I would say is uh, recognize that we are always beginners in prayer. And so whether you've been uh, praying for 20 years or 40 years or whether you just entered into a relationship with God, we're always beginning with God in prayer. We're always beginners. And so for me, prayer is about sharing presence with God. And uh, it's, it's often the case that much of our prayers are marked by verbosity. There's a lot of talking, but mm. prayer is often about just sharing our, our life. And so what I often recommend is set a timer on your phone, uh, sit with your arms open, uh, have the name Jesus or a phrase like Holy Spirit or the peace of God on your lips, and then 
And just repeatedly say that whenever you find yourself getting distracted, just hold on to that phrase and open yourself up to God and recognize, number one, that prayer is not should not be marked by verbosity. It's about sharing our presence with God. And the second thing I would say uh, is uh, Jesus has given us the prayers to pray. And when his disciples said, teach us to pray, he gave them the Lord's prayer. Mm -hmm. And I pray Mm -hmm. that, as you alluded to earlier, every single day, very slowly and contemplatively. And sometimes I stop at one particular word, but that's been a, a prayer that I go to often multiple times a day, especially when I get to the part of forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Mm. I spend a lot of time with that. But I think the words of Jesus are sufficient enough to help us grow in our life with God in prayer. That's so good. Our guest today is Pastor Rich Velotis, author of the new book, The Deeply Formed Life. And he's going to stick around for just one more segment as we ask him a little bit more about his book, Racial Reconciliation, and maybe a way forward. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Our guest all this hour has been Rich Velotis, pastor and author of The Deeply Formed Life. Just to say it out loud, Rich, by the way, I'm so grateful for, for you and for your voice. If you're not following Rich on Facebook and or Twitter, I, I highly recommend it. Your words have been an encouragement to me and to my family and our church. So just you know, to say it out loud, personally, I'm, I'm very grateful for you and for your work. And, and one of the things that you mentioned in the book, and we touched on this in the first segment, is that you actually kind of lay out a model for racial justice and reconciliation that I, I think people would find really helpful. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, Ian, thanks for the kind words. When I think about uh, racial justice and reconciliation, I mentioned earlier that we have to think about it on three different levels, individually, interpersonally, and institutionally. If I could uh, step out a little further and provide another framework, I think because race is such a multi-layered issue and incredibly complex, comprehensive, uh, we need a framework that at least provides us with handles to address the various facets of it. And so when I think about moving the conversation forward within my congregation, I like to think about race on at least six levels. And I'll just Mm. uh, allude to them here and then hone in on the one that I spend more time on in the book. I think race needs to be talked about theologically, historically, sociologically, ecclesiologically, uh, politically. And what I mean by that is in terms of policy. And then lastly, formationally. Uh, I could spend a lot of time on each of those. And in the book, I cover uh, some of those there. But I think the last part is what I spend most time in the deeply formed life. What kind of formation in Christ do we need Hmm. to engage this conversation on multiple levels? And uh, it requires a life that is uh, introspective. It requires a life that's honest. It requires a life that... Um, that recognizes our blind spots. And so in the book, you know, each, each theme that I cover has kind of a theological chapter or a big picture chapter. And then the second chapter has to deal with the various practices to help us live into this. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that I lead our congregation in whenever I talk about matters of race is to help people uh, think about the ways they've been formed uh, in particular by their families of origin. Uh, uh, our families of origin, our, our parents, our grandparents, whoever raised us, uh, had the most impact in terms of our formation than anyone else. 
And uh, there have been messages that have been consciously spoken or unconsciously interpreted in the families that we grew up around or grew up in as it pertains to people who don't look like us. And so uh, I often help people to navigate the messages. And this comes out of good family systems theory in terms of how, the, how people use the genogram. Um, but I, I help people to think about how did your family consciously or unconsciously, what are the messages they gave you about black people, about Hispanic people, Asian people, white people, Middle Eastern people, Native American people? And those are, that's one of the practices that I, I talk about in the deeply formed life, because uh, unless we're really nailing and uh, being honest about the messages we've inherited, we're going to have a hard time then moving the conversation forward, being honest with ourselves, and then thinking in terms of how do these messages impact the way I think about how society should be ordered. Um, so in terms of the framework is massive, but that just gives you a little sense as to how I'm, I think through this massive conversation. That's awesome. Uh, so I, here's a line from your book that is really convicting. I'd love for you to explain it. You say, uh, we are formed to believe that God is only in the places and with people that mirror our belief systems. I read that and was just kind of, okay, I got to sit and think on that one. Can you talk us through and explain that thought process that you had there? Yeah, we often live with, and I include myself here, with this theological confirmation bias uh, in which uh, as long as you believe as I do, uh, God is with you. Uh, but if you don't see the world in the way that I see it, certainly God is not blessing the work that you're doing. And of course, I mean, um, uh, you know, we, we have various visions of how the world uh, should be should unfold and what flourishing looks like in our world. Uh, but what happens is, and I find it to be true in my own life, uh, it's often challenging for me to sit and hear the perspectives of other people and then make a conclusion, might God be in this? Uh, mm -hmm. And so in our polarized society, theological polarization, political polarization, racial polarization, uh, we have no time to actually sit and listen with someone who might differ from us. And so from the, from the get-go, we're already saying, of course God can't be with you. Of course mm -hmm. God can't be... Uh, confirming or putting his stamp of approval on what you believe. So I'm, we live with this theological confirmation bias, and I'm not alone in it. And um, it's very challenging. So the, the work of actually listening to people and discerning God, why do people believe what they believe? And God might surprise us in terms of uh, people seeing the world differently than us might not be a judgment on them. It might be a judgment on us because maybe we've mm. missed it. So um but that theological confirmation bias is how I like to think about uh, that statement there. That's incredibly helpful. One, one of the things that I often hear as a criticism towards the contemplative or the monastic is sort of like, well, we can't all go live in the woods or on mountaintops. There's actual like mission that needs to happen. There's things that need to be done. You know, and I'm, I'm a part of a church that is, you know, historically for 30 years been been very mission minded and started church planning networks. And you you have a statement that you unpack about deeply formed mission is first about who we're becoming before what we are doing. And that, I mean, that just like resonated with my soul. Could you unpack a little bit more about not only why you believe that, but why that's so critical for us to understand that? Yeah, I, I believe that our mission fundamentally is not about the good deeds that we do. For Christians, our primary mission is to be Jesus Christ for another person. 
and to model something of Jesus Christ, his love, his mercy, his justice, his, his compassion. When people see us, uh, more than just seeing our good deeds, as good as these deeds are, uh, they, they need to see something of Christ. Uh, and so the, the contemplative dimension of life and, and, and Christianity is one in which we are trying to immerse ourselves in God, in prayer, in reflection, so that what oozes out of us is exactly what the world needs, uh, mm-hmm. God. Uh, Robert Mulholland, uh, who is a writer on spiritual formation, uh, he came to our church a couple of years ago. He passed away a couple of years ago, but before he died, he came and led a leadership conference for us. And he said one line that has stayed with me for a number of years. He said, there's two ways of being in the world. We can be in the world for God, or we can be in God for the world. And there's mm. a very big difference. There are a lot of people who are in the world for God. And what that means is very simply, we have the various banner issues, the various issues that we believe God is concerned about. And we wave that banner in such a way that we create hierarchies or create, uh, you know, bounded set kind of thinking in which some people are in and who's out based on the banner that we're waving. And Mm -hmm. so the challenge is you can be in the world for God without God. The challenge, the invitation is to be in God for the world. And that's what Deeply Formed Mission is. It begins with my life being saturated with God in prayer and reflection in scripture in silence and solitude. And then out of that place saying, what does it mean to be the healing presence of Jesus in my home, in my workplace, at the school, in the neighborhood? But it begins with a recognition that I can do plenty of things for God without God. But God, what God is calling me to is a life where I'm abiding in God and then expressing that to the world around me. It's a, it's a huge mm, difference. Absolutely. Well, Rich, uh, we are super grateful that you spend so much time with us. Again, Rich's book is The Deeply Formed Life. Before we let you go, why don't you give everybody a website, social media, where if people are like, man, I want to hear more from this guy, where can they find your book and where can they find you online? Yeah, if you went to richvalotis.com, that's Velotis is V-I-L-L-O-D-A-S, richvalotis.com. Uh, you'll see some of the things that I put out related to the book and um, other stuff that I've done. Also, if you just want to get here about our church, just newlife.nyc. Uh, you can catch me there. And then lastly, I'm usually on like Twitter or Instagram at uh, Rich Velotis. And um, I usually test out a lot of my ideas on Twitter <laughs> about what's going to work in a sermon or not. Uh, so uh, you'll find a lot of reflections on theology and a lot, whole lot of other things like the Mets. Uh, there you go. <laughs> so if you're, if you're looking for I mean, an eclectic account to follow, um, <laughs> check that out. I love it. Our guest today has been Pastor Rich Velotas, author of the new book, The Deeply Formed Life. I cannot recommend enough that you all pick it up and go ahead and buy two and give one to a friend. Rich, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. This has been great. Appreciate it, man. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to hit a whole bunch of headlines rapid fire. And then for the rest of the hour, we'll be joined by pastor and author Issa McCauley. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. It is a bit sunshinier today than last we chatted, and I, for one, am grateful. Uh, Another thing I'm grateful for, Brian, we have a Facebook page. Did you know that? 
I'm aware. Yes, with a lot of traffic today. A lot of traffic on it today. A lot of traffic. We're not lying. If you want to head on over to the Facebook, uh, the Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show is where you go on the Facebooks. You can find all the articles we post. You can shoot us a message if you want. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash the Common Good. And wherever it is you get your podcasts, I'm really, really excited about the rest of this hour. Esau McCauley is someone that we've been reading from and quoting a a good deal the last few months. And so he's going to join us for three segments coming up. That's something I did a little earlier this week. And last week, I think, is just to grab a, a couple of pretty compelling headlines that I didn't really know that we had much commentary other than the headline or the general gist. So I think I got four or five of them here. And uh, Brian Fromm, I'm going to let you just go first and pick which one you want to do. Oh, let's start at the Business Insider, where it says Barack Obama and others' Twitter accounts were hacked in cryptocurrency scam last night. Uh And I'll bring that up because uh, then they shut down Twitter last night for everybody with a blue checkmark. And Mm -hmm. it was a weird deal. Like if you went on Twitter last night, anybody with a blue checkmark who are basically people, you know, celebrities, politicians, whatever, authors, writers, um, and they just shut it down. And so it was all people without uh, blue check marks going, hey, I really like Twitter more now. <laughs> but but yeah, Twitter got hacked last night. So I saw it was uh, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Bill Gates, and a bunch of others in which somebody was using their, their – somebody had hacked into their pages or their accounts and was trying to pull a scam with uh, Bitcoin. So – uh, you don't always trust everything, uh, you know, uh, social media wise. Sometimes, you know, you got to be a little careful. But it was interesting. You're not used to these big people uh, getting hacked like that. So when people were getting alerts from Joe Biden's account trying to sell Bitcoin, uh, it kind of raised some red flags. That's a real hot take there, Brian. Don't always believe everything online, I think is what you said. <laughs> It's okay. a true statement, though. That's the <laughs> understatement of the century. <laughs> the Hot take right, out, right out of the shoot today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, I'll go a little more lighthearted, but I guess still kind of serious. This headline out of Wired says llamas. Yes, llamas could help us fight COVID-19. These creatures have evolved special nanobodies that may have an edge over human antibodies when it comes to developing a new treatment. I've seen probably a dozen or so articles about this. Have you read anything up on this? No, notion? I haven't seen this at all until you posted it. Oh, really? No, not at all. So some people might take issue, especially if you're a, a young earther. It starts off by saying millions of years ago, some unknown common ancestor of today's llamas, camels, and alpacas underwent an unusual genetic mutation. This evolutionary happenstance gave llamas and their kin a strange type of antibody that no other mammals have, which surprisingly could end up aiding in the fight against COVID-19. On Monday in the journal, of natural uh, structural and molecular biology researchers from the Rosalind Franklin Institute and the University of Oxford reported the discovery of two llama antibodies, also called nanobodies, which I'd never heard of, that could prevent the virus that causes COVID-19 from infecting human cells. So when I first saw it, I was like, this is some weird meme troll thing. And then I actually right. did a little bit of research. I was like, oh, these are these are big institutions. This is a This is a very real possibility. So either way, that's posted on the Facebook page. You can read the whole thing, but I, I thought that was super interesting. The hope, our hope, it comes down to the llamas. It fe- sounds like a bad movie, <laughs> or a, or a great movie, or a valid point, depending on who is playing the star. Other than the llama, sure. uh, 
Let's do this next one. Uh, we took it out of the New York Post. Navajo Nation suggests a new name for the Washington football team. So uh, we talked about this earlier in the week. Uh, the Washington football team, formerly known as the Redskins, is changing their name under much pressure. Even after their owner, Daniel Snyder, said he would never, ever consider changing the name, they started getting real pressure from some real money, Nike, FedEx, and others. And they are now changing the name. Uh, as an aside, I don't know if you saw this, their Washington Post has been kind of hinting at a huge story coming out today about the Redskins that might it might they were they're commenting that it might have the owner it might cause the owner to have to sell the team it's that scandalous so oh, nobody really? knows nobody knows what it is uh but it's supposed to drop uh today tomorrow if they can nail it all down but anyway it actually has nothing to do with the name change it has to do with their culture um but anyway the Navajo Nation is suggesting that the Washington football team take on the name Code Talkers uh as kind of to pay homage uh, to the famous Indian code uh, talkers that um, kind of a, a flip, right? They've used what has been viewed as as a Native American uh, racial slur all these years. So now do something to honor the Native Americans. Uh, I believe that the Redskins have at least hinted, or the Washington football team, I'm sorry, has hinted that they're not going to use anything kind of Native American related uh it's a great idea. I can't imagine a football team being called the Code Talkers. That doesn't that doesn't uh, roll off the tongue, uh, the Washington Code Talkers. But as an idea, I do think it's really good to say, hey, we kind of went this direction with the Native Americans. What if we used a Native American name that kind of uh, celebrates something from Native American history? So I like the idea, although if I'm honest, for a football team, I don't really like the name. I mean, I don't know that it's the oddest football team name I've I've ever heard. I did also see as a quick aside, there's another guy who's apparently buying up all the uh all the domain and trademarks that. of like related possibilities to like force the team to have to buy one of them from him, which is Yep. Sort, sort of the same version of like the guy that bought up all the hand sanitizer at the beginning of all this pandemic, right? <laughs> kind of the same. I mean, nah, I guess not quite the same. Uh, all right, we got two more I want to tackle, and we don't have a whole lot of time. This one just sort of has me scratching my head. It's out of CBS News. 87 people charged with felonies after Breonna Taylor protest at Attorney General's house. It was a peaceful protest. It says 87 people were arrested and charged with a felony after a Tuesday protest on the lawn of Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron, the Louisville Metro Police Department, said in a statement, the protesters were demanding that charges be filed against the officers responsible for the March shooting death of Breonna Taylor. The protest began Tuesday evening near Ballard High School in Louisville, Kentucky. And it kind of goes on. I mean, again, I, 87, the picture at the top is is pretty wild. And it is something that has a lot of people on the Internet really yep. confused slash angry. It was a peaceful protest, but it was on someone's property. Again, I'm not versed enough to know like what are right. the various protections, but the arrests to me seems odd seems strange and i know that brianna taylor's name is one that people have worked really really hard to kind of continue to maintain uh traction and you know to be in the public eye we only have about a minute left why don't don't you get to this last one briefly yeah uh i just thought that this facebook post that you posted was hilarious so i wanted to end with this mayor lightfoot saying uh the other day i'm not the mother who threatens to take the keys i will pull the car over shut the car off kick you out and make you walk home that's who i am Mayor Lightfoot talking about that how she will not be uh, 
hesitant or scared to kind of put some restrictions back on if Chicago doesn't do well. Governor Pritzker has said much the same. So use that as an encouragement, people, to keep wearing your mask, keep being vigilant because uh, some numbers are going the wrong way nationwide. So we as Illinois need to do well. But Mayor Lightfoot saying, I'm ready to pull this car over, kick you out and make you walk home. (laughs) Right, right. Well, coming up next, and I mentioned that I'm really excited about this, Esau McCauley, who is both the pastor and a speaker and a writer and the author of a new book that's coming out in September, Reading While Black. He's going to stay with us for the rest of the hour here at The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a bunch of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, and wherever it is you get your podcast. Wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, reviewing, all that stuff it does actually help us out. But I, I got to tell you, I am absolutely thrilled to have Dr. Esau McCauley on the show right now and for the rest of the hour. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Let me just give a brief introduction. Dr. Esau McCauley is not only a professor at Wheaton College, he is a Anglican pastor and the author of a brand new book, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Just, you've written so much and we're grateful for you, man. We've we've referenced so many of your articles over the last couple of months. Uh, and I'm just curious, as you've been writing, but also just processing all that's been going on in our country for the last couple of months, just... Uh, where's your mind at? How do you? How would you say the church is doing? And uh, are you are you encouraged or discouraged by what's going on out there right now? Um, well, my encouragement or discouragement is I, I try not to keep it rooted in human beings. Um, my mm. hope is ultimately in the resurrected Jesus, and since Christ is risen, I'm never without hope. So that's at least when I'm doing when I'm in my best place spiritually. I'm not looking at what individuals are doing and saying, because because these individuals are doing well, then I feel better because that's just too fickle. Human beings will disappoint you. Now, do I think that the church is making progress? Um, I hope so. I think that um, I always, I always like to say that I don't think that like American pedagogy, especially American church pedagogy has to be purchased through black blood. So on one level, I feel like, and and this is not to be, yeah, should it take all of this to get people to listen to us? And so Mm -hmm. I think that I am encouraged because I believe that God is faithful and that he never has abandoned his people. And I'm encouraged by the fact that um, more people are starting to recognize the scope of the problem and participate in bringing about change from a decidedly Christian perspective. Hmm. So you actually, you use the word hope in the subtitle of your book. The book's called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Tell us a little bit more about your hope for that book specifically, because I know that writing a book is a really involved process, and you probably have a thousand different ways you could answer that question. But what, what are you really kind of hoping to accomplish with that work? Well, actually, um, I wrote the book. It's, it's, it's amazing how, much, how little has changed in the last three years that I wrote the book. So when I, when I, one of the motivations, I have a lot of motivations when someone sits down to write. One of the motivations was I saw some of the African-American movements for justice in America. And I remember seeing an interview or something 
where someone said, this is not your parents' civil rights movement. And at least the way I took that particular conversation was the kind of Christian principles and ideas that, that shaped some of the moves and practices of the civil rights movement were being, um, that's what was, that was what we were going to do. And it, and it was, that was a part of a larger conversation that I saw within the black community. It was asking a particular question. And the particular question was, is Christianity a friend or foe of black, Christ, of, of black people in the cause of justice or just in, in black flourishing more generally? And what I wanted to say in the book was historically, African Americans have turned to the process of Bible reading and Bible interpretation as a source of hope. So the reading in the Bible, and seeing in the Bible a God who loved them, a God who cared about them, and a God who wanted their freedom, and a God who's, who stood on behalf of the poor, a God who cared about injustice. They're like, when African people saw this, discovered this God in the Bible, it was the means by which they engaged society. And so what I wanted to show people was not just saying, let's go back to the past and bring back the past, but to say that we can still return to these texts and find in these texts a depiction of a God who's a friend and not an enemy. So that was part of what mm-hmm. I wanted to do in the book. And, and I, I, I like to use the analogy of the edited slave Bible. And I think that they said something like, when you think about when Jefferson and these other people during the um, American Revolution, when they when they created, well, I don't know if Jefferson created, but when they created the um, slave Bible, Jefferson created a different edited Bible. When they created the Bible for the slaves, they one of the Bibles had at least 60% of the the passages taken out of it. So we think of, when you think right. of editing a slave passage, you might think there's a verse here, a verse there. It took 60% of the Bible away because they wow. thought that in 60% of the passages, there was encouragement that would lead the slaves to no longer accept their condition. And that's because they knew mm-hmm. the Bible was dangerous. And what happens when the slaves mm-hmm. got the Bible, right? When the slaves actually got the, got a hold to the Bible, it was impossible to convince them of what they, of what they knew to be true almost instinctively. That, that it was impossible to convince them that God wanted them to remain in the condition that they were in. And so the Bible has always been dangerous for the oppression, for the oppressor when the oppressed got it. And what I want to do is mm. hand the Bible back as a dangerous book and not hand the Bible back as if they don't have it, but I present the Bible again as a dangerous book in the hands of people who believe in the God depicted in those texts as it relates to mm. um, their freedom and liberation. Mm. You know, Esau, uh, Ian specifically has been asking a lot of our guests uh, this question that we've gotten from a lot of people like, hey, we should just be preaching the gospel, not talking about social justice and other things. How would you answer that question when people are like, hey, let's just preach the gospel? I mean, I would ask them if they would ask, if they would say that to Isaiah or Jesus himself. I mean, one of the mm-hmm. things about the question is when we say just preach the Bible, if we just preach the Bible, we're not going to, we're not going to use the, we're not going to get caught up in the gospel language. Let's talk about the Bible. In Isaiah, read the first five chapters of Isaiah. You will see Isaiah doing the following things. Isaiah talks about, um, personal immorality. He says, where do you who get up early in the morning to drink wine and, and chase, you know, immorality all day? In that same book, Isaiah would say, woe to you who abandoned the covenant of your God and chased after idols. He will also say, woe to you who join house to house so there's no room left in the land. Woe to you who take Mm. bribes and and oppress the innocent. So in Isaiah, in Mm. Isaiah, just that one book, you have personal morality, fidelity to the one God of Israel, 
a critique of Israel's social practices as it relates to the oppression of the poor. So if I'm preaching Isaiah and I preach from Isaiah a passage about the faithfulness of the one God, great job preaching the gospel, Esau. If I preach about from Isaiah and I talk about personal morality, it's great job, Esau. If I go to Isaiah and I preach about what Isaiah says about the exploitation of the poor by mm-hmm. people in political power or by court systems, I'm now no longer preaching the Bible. So all I want to do is say we have to preach the whole counsel of God. James in the New yeah. Testament says he criticizes rich landowners who are not paying fair wages to their workers. And if I were to stand up in a congregation and say, here, based upon James, how do we apply this to our business practices in America? I would be seen as not preaching the gospel. And so there's a difference between saying, here's the ways in which people need to be saved. That's part of Christianity, right? You never need to put that to the side. But every pastor that I know also disciples people through preaching. Right. And you train people on how to live in the idea that the Bible doesn't speak to how we live interpersonally as it relates to issues of injustice. Right. The Bible talks about what what I'm saying is when you preach about marriage, you're not people don't say just preach the gospel. When you preach about how to parent, people don't say just preach the gospel. It is only when Mm -hmm. something and if you stood up and preached a pro-life message, people will not say Mm -hmm. just preach the gospel. What just right. preach the gospel is code for. Here's something I politically disagree with, and I would call it not gospel <laughs> as a way to silence people. Oof, that'll preach. I'm so glad you're sticking around for two more segments, Esau, <laughs> because I have so many more questions to follow that. But uh, if you're just joining us, by the way, go back and listen to the rest of this interview on the podcast because I have no doubt it's going to be wonderful. That other voice is Dr. Esau McCauley. He's a PhD, an author, and a pastor, and he's going to be sticking around for two more segments here on the Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a bunch of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post our articles. You can send us messages. You can also get the podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. Plus, we're on Instagram and Twitter, at Common Good Talk. And we have, for the rest of the hour, Dr. Esau McCauley, who's not only a pastor, but an author and a writer and a thinker and someone who has been honestly really helpful for us, even in the forming of this show the last couple of months. He has got a new book coming out called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. And you wrote a piece for the New York Times a little while ago, and the headline simply reads this, What the Bible Has to Say About Black Anger. Tell us a little bit more about that article. Yeah, um, so... I had I wanted to take some time off from writing about black people dying. If I, forgive me if, if I if I get the timeline incorrect, but um, mm-hmm. I had written the article about Ahmed Arbery, and then um, mm-hmm. Breonna Taylor. Not these things didn't happen like chronologically, but the time like as far as I became aware of them, I then became aware of the Breonna Taylor story, and I was like, I'm just tired of um, of lamenting black death. And then the George Floyd incident followed strongly after that. And I was in a real place of like anger. And I just started writing a, a article and I actually wrote what became the first two paragraphs of it based largely upon a, a chapter on black anger that's in my, in my um, book on it. And it was so dark, to be honest, I had to just stop writing it because there was like no hope. It was almost like Psalm 88, where it ends with darkness is my only companion. Because Mm -hmm. in that portion, I talk about how um, like the the video depiction of black suffering is not new. You can look at the um, 
the 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 pictures of African Americans being lynched, where people are posed mm-hmm. next to, to to black corpses. You can look at the, at the, at the hoses and the dogs that were turned on black people um, during the civil rights movement, and I compared that sense of anger that I had to Psalm one thirty seven. Psalm one thirty seven is one of the darkest psalms in the Bible, and it, it occurs in the context of. Um, Israel being invaded by the Babylonians, the Babylonians came in, burned their city to the ground, massacred tons of people mm-hmm. and took them off to exile. And Psalm 137 depicts the aftermath. And Psalm 137 mm-hmm. has, I think, one of the darkest like verses in the Bible, which is, blessed be the one who takes your, your little ones and dashes them against the stones. And mm-hmm. I said, well, what kind of like what kind of what could lead someone to say that, that I'm going to take the head of a baby. Blessed is the person who takes the head of a baby and dashes it against the rocks. And I began to think to myself, after doing some research on it too, that's because it is highly likely that that is what happened to the psalmist. That when when the Babylonians came in, they committed tremendous atrocities. That's what happens when cities are sacked. And so what the psalmist mm-hmm. was actually saying is, I hope that what happened to 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 us happens to you. And I'm saying I'm not, and I don't believe that like what that actually means is that God wanted us to go and smash the heads of, ba- of Babylonian babies, but I think it is a record in time of people's trauma. And when we pray to God, we have to be able to pray the entire truth. And anybody who's really, really in, in, experienced suffering, sometimes our prayers are like, God, I'm just mad. And God can handle that prayer. The question isn't whether or not we can pray our anger to God. The question is, how does God respond back? And in the second half of the article, which is actually, it's funny when you write something, it's actually written weeks later. Um, hmm. I, I, I talk about, and this, the same thing actually happens in the, in the, in the chapter, and it's much more nuanced than I do it in the, in the article. It's only a, a certain amount of time. I say the miracle of the Bible is not that it includes Psalm 137. Anybody could talk about vengeance. The miracle of the Bible is that it includes Isaiah 49. That Isaiah 49 is one of these passages where Isaiah is able to envision what happens after Israel's been into exile. Like what come when they come back. And this is what this is this is the what the word that God gives to the prophet Isaiah. It is too light a thing for you to simply restore Israel. But I'll give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So in a place where the natural inclination is just to have vengeance, the miracle of the Bible is the Bible presents something beyond vengeance, which is the reconciliation of the nations under the under the lordship of, or kingship of God. And I talk about how as a black Christian, I have to at some point move from Psalm 137 to Isaiah 49. And the cross is the means by which I make that transition. But when I say that, and this is the other way this can be misunderstood, this doesn't mean that I cease to say that there should be justice and equality. What I'm talking about is what comes after justice, right? And I talk about there has to be justice so we can be reconciled. People talk about reconciliation. I say this all of the time. And and, and I don't I don't want to use a an inflammatory analogy, but I'll put it this way. If you want to reconcile with your wife or your spouse, the first thing they need to do, and, and they've cheated on you, the first thing they got to do is stop the affair, right? So before right, we can begin right. to talk about us getting back together, you need to stop the affair. Or if you have a gambling problem and you're gambling away all of the money, you know what you need to do before you can come back home? Stop gambling. So justice, right. the righting of wrongs, the changing of behavior is what allows reconciliation to take place. And so mm-hmm. reconciliation doesn't rule out justice. It's what keeps justice from just being vengeance. 
Hmm. And so what hmm. I wanted to say in that article was African-Americans have, there's a long tradition of Christians being upset by injustice and African-Americans are a part of that tradition. And there's also a tradition hmm. of looking beyond simply that revenge to the transformation of structures, but that and the reconciliation between estranged parties and all of that is part of the Christian ministry, Christian ministry. Oh, that's so good. Another article that we talked about of yours, and I found it just fascinating. It just says this as racism tears a country apart. The message of Pentecost can help the church find its voice. Uh, I know this was written back at the beginning of June, but can you talk about that and talk about that article a little bit? Oh, it's so funny. This is like, sorry, nobody wants to hear the whole of that story. I cannot believe that you all actually found it. So what happened? What, can I tell you, I, I want to tell you about how that came to be. I was actually supposed to be preaching. I'm supposed to be preaching a sermon on Pentecost and I, it was a Zoom sermon. So the Zoom sermon, like in the middle of it, Zoom breaks down and it, and everything goes wrong. And I have to actually preach on Pentecost into a phone while, while it's being recorded to a church in North Carolina. And it was such a wow. miserable experience that I got off the phone and just like posted the article on my personal website. And then I was still kind of annoyed. I said, but I never got to actually preach it. So I, I said, I'm going to go live <laughs> on Facebook so I can just preach this message. So I said, if you want to listen, here's a free Pentecost sermon. So I preached a Pentecost <laughs> sermon. And then the people in Christianity today reached out to me yeah. and said, can we turn this into an article? And then it turns into an article. And then it kind of runs all over the Internet. But what I was trying to get at, <laughs> what I was trying to get at is that the message of Pentecost at the heart of it, right, is this idea that, that, that God's spirit falls upon men and women. And what God's spirit does, it, it leads them out into the world to preach to the varied peoples of the world. And the, in the mode of Pentecost, right, the spirit falling upon men and women, young and old, rich and poor, and going out mm-hmm. to preach the gospel. And the first thing that you hear is a variety of nations, not a variety of languages all here in the gospel. The point of it is the gospel is supposed to bring us together. What is it that can unite the divided peoples of the world when the when the philosophies and the governmental policies have failed? It is the gospel. And when I talk about this, it doesn't mean that like we just need to be Christians and all of our problems are going to go away. What it means is mm. the church as the united people of God across difference have an opportunity to witness to a different way of being human. Wow. That's so good. And I'm so glad you're sticking around, by the way, for one more segment, because you're working on a new article that I want to ask you about, if that's okay. That is a whole other lane of interest for Brian and I and something we talk a whole lot on the show here. But that third voice that you're hearing is Dr. Esau McCauley. He's the author of a new book coming out in September, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. That's what's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. I'm not going to bore you with the details, just you can Google it, that's fine. But I'm thrilled to have on the show for a third segment, Dr. Esau McCauley, who's not only a pastor and an author, he's got a new book coming out called Reading While Black, African American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. You've also recently become a formal contributor to the New York Times, right? I don't know how the formal process goes. You've been you've been knighted or something. Yeah, they gave, they gave me a gold they gave me a gold star or get, like when you were in elementary school. 
<laughs> so no, well, you um, were you were mentioning you were mentioning during the break that you're working on an article that's specifically about parenting, and I'm just fascinated by that. You mentioned that it, you know you never know if it's going to get published or not, but I'm wondering yeah. if you could tell us a little bit about that thing that you're working on. So yeah, you may never see it, or you may see it sometime next week. So uh, I took, I t- it was really it was, it was about pandemic parenting and what it means to be a black parent. So I took my son mm-hmm. to a baseball game. Um, I mean, a baseball practice, it's baseball practice a few weeks ago. And it was a normal baseball practice. And, but when I went to, my wife dropped them off. I went to go pick him up or vice versa. But I remember when I went and saw them, they were all wearing masks. Mm-hmm. And it struck me like both how normal it was to have baseball during the summer and how abnormal it was to like have a mask on. And I remember, um, and it kind of it kind of reminded me of kind of the the summer of COVID nineteen, where parents are always involved in this difficult calculus. What do we allow our kids to do? We're balancing like their safety with their need to be children, and so we're saying, right. okay, well then, which families can come over? Which you know, what kind of activities can we go through? You know, the the swimming pools are all closed for the summer, and there's this constant calculus. How much do I allow my kids to be free and how much do I put um, kind of hindrances on them? And I just know that, mm-hmm. for example, during the, the I think we were closed somewhere around 45 days in Illinois, it felt like from middle of March all the way through the end of May. And I saw the toll mm-hmm. that it took on my kids emotionally and spiritually not to be able to see their friends. And so mm-hmm. I was thinking to myself, like, if they don't open it up soon, I got to find some ways to keep my kids emotionally and spiritually healthy. But at the same time, this is a real pandemic that's really dangerous to people. And so I can't put my kids safety. You know, I can't just so that that struggle. But that struggle to me is similar to the struggle that African-American parents have actually had for centuries. We're asking this question. Mm -hmm. How much do I allow my black child to simply just be a kid to run and play and exist versus preparing them and warning them about the dangers that comes with being black in America? So when I do I tell, for example, do I tell my nine year old daughter that one hundred and thirty five thousand people have died from a, a virus? Can a should a nine year old have to hold that weight on the same mm-hmm. sense? And, and this is what I'm saying, though. It's a similar question that we're asking as black parents. What how much about what happens to them in America? Do the kids need to know and when? Do you know, do I tell my son about Ahmed Arbery and then George Floyd? And then talk about right. the racial elements of it. So I'm always engaging in this, like, how do I prepare my kids for living in this country versus how much right. do I keep them safe? And it, and mm-hmm. is me, it is me not telling them at some point parental neglect. So like to me, mm-hmm. it was a young kid outside just playing with a gun, a toy gun, right? And he gets shot. Right. So do I like do I say you know what my nine year old or my ten year old or my twelve year old he should play with the gun because he's a kid, or do I say you know what son we're gonna play with that in the backyard? Mm. And so that can, yeah. so that calculus is something that I think that all black parents struggle with, and I think that in a small way all of America is being introduced to this reality. And the other thing that's really interesting about especially COVID nineteen is. The danger is hidden, right? It's like our very physical bodies are the danger. So we don't know who has it. So we're all suspicious of one another. And so in the same way, when like when you're black in public spaces, like your physical body is perceived as a threat. Hmm. Like my son is 12 years old. I say this all the time. He's 12 years old. 
And that means he's like middle school. And you know, some middle schoolers are closer to being elementary schoolers than they are to high schoolers. They're in that transition from like cute to like young boy, young man. Mm -hmm. And once you transition to young man and you're black in America, you interact with the world differently. He was cute two years ago. He won't be cute mm. when he's 14. He, he'll be a potential danger. And how do I balance that discussion? Mm. And so yeah. pandemic parenting is in a limited sense, similar to black parenting more generally. And I talked about how me and my wife, what we've, what we've decided to do is to have a bias towards joy. And that mm. means like, I don't tell my kid, you know, every horrible thing that happens. And when I do, I let him know, like, he knows what's happened. To, he know my children know about what's happened in America. But my focus isn't on black suffering. It's on black triumph in the face of suffering. Mm-hmm. And so learning how to find joy while being black in America is similar to the attempts to kind of find joy in the midst of a a complicated pandemic because as much as we love our children we can't protect them mm. we can't yeah i mean yeah. you can limit it but like it's not it's literally not safe and i know that like the reality of a chance of a kid dying from the um from the coronavirus is um is slim so that's not what i mean what i mean is like they're they are marked by this time of their lives yeah. Do you yeah. like we don't know the long term implications of shutting, isolating our kids for 45 days and then half allowing them out into the world and then have them knowing in the back of their mind that people are dying. You've been listening to Dr. Esau McCauley, author of the new book, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Esau, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. We appreciate it so much. We'd love to have you back, man. That sounds great. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.